Tyrese Halliburton was stunned, Malika. Uh, the league is stunned at this trade. First 10 for three. Welcome to another edition of the Indie Cornrows Podcast. This is your host, Mark Schindler. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, colleague, and friend, Caitlin Cooper. Caitlin, how are you doing today? Doing well. Glad to be back after our short little break. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm excited, too. We have, a, we have another fun player review coming at you guys, uh, We as, as it has been named. Jeez, I cannot speak. The one. Uh, so one, one play, one number. And one over under to describe the, the the player season and some of the upcoming stuff we're looking at. Um, I have a question for you really quick, too, before we dive in. I know you are a Pop-Tart aficionado. I had Pop-Tarts for breakfast, actually. Um, I think it's the Frosted Cherry ones. They're actually really good. What's your favorite Pop-Tart? That's not the uh, plain ones with melted butter that you tend to like. Those are the best ones, though. The okay, unfrosted but, but the, brown sugar, sugar cinnamon are the best ones. First of and all, then, how do you get unfrosted brown sugar? That's a thing? Yes, they don't have frosting on them. That's like, I'm weird. not putting butter on a frosted Pop-Tart. Well, you never know. People are different. Yeah, uh, no. This this is like basically like think of a piece of pie. Like, it just has plain crust. And then when I get it out of the toaster, I put melted butter on the top of it. Okay, so, but what about like not that one? You know, like if you have to eat a regular Pop-Tart, what is it? Well, number two would be the unfrosted strawberry ones. Okay, well, what, but, if, it has, um, what if it has frosting? <laughs> if it has frosting, I haven't eaten a frosted Pop-Tart since I was a kid, but I would um, probably like the wild berry one. It okay. has like the random, it's like purple with like a blue. Yeah, no, that streak. one's pretty good. I haven't had that one. And it was pretty solid. The other one that I, I think that I liked was the cinnamon roll one that has like, I don't want to call it cream cheese, but like just a drizzle of frosting on the top. Mm-hmm. But those would probably be the ones I would go to if I needed a frosted Pop-Tart. Yeah. Okay. I, I can, I can ride with that. I've been doing more Pop-Tarts lately. Um, I normally am a bagel person, but yeah, Pop-Tarts have, have been more and more regular, which I, I'm not sure what that says about me, um, but we'll move on before we can decipher. Uh, Caitlin, who are we doing today? Today, we are looking at some of the rest of the guards that come off the bench. We're not touching Chris Duarte yet. He's going to be part of the last pod. So we have TJ McConnell, Dwayne Washington Jr., and Lance Stevenson. Yeah, and I have Lance and TJ. You have Dwayne, so I guess we can we can get started. Um, I guess I'll go with Lance first. Uh, I guess you know before before we even dive into my one play is I, I want to ask you if you had one word for for Lance's season, what would it be? One word for Lance. Um, it might be surprising. Just off the top of my head, simply because I'm surprised that I don't want to say that it would have annoyed me, but like the idea of bringing Lance back in the past, like if we fast forward to the bubble hiatus when Brogdon had the injury and Jeremy Lamb obviously had suffered the season ending injury and Victor was still somewhat on minutes restriction, it wasn't certain whether he was even going to go to the bubble and there was discussions about 
you know, adding Lance as an additional body. I understood that they needed bodies, but I remember I was somewhat critical because I'm like, you know, how is this even going to work with TJ McConnell? A lot of these lineups with the way he fit the prior time, I don't really see it as a fit. And I got pushed back from that, which is fine. Like everybody can have their own opinion. And so this go around, I wasn't, I didn't have near as strong of his opinion. Cause I'm like, you know, this is somewhat of a lost season. They're dealing with COVID. They got to get people in here. Fans like Lance, like that's fine. And if he can reasonably throw a pocket pass, then, you know, that's going to be a win. And by the time he played, I mean, I think you and I talked about it during that little COVID depleted stuff. Like he actually played decently. Like, I mean, he still has the Lance-ness to him, but as being an end of season stopgap and me just going in it, you know, eyes open for what some of his flaws on the defensive end and other stuff are going to be. I was surprised that it didn't like bother me as much during his minutes. I thought he gave them decent minutes in some of the games. Like you take the good with the bad, but um, I didn't have near as, as much of a negative reaction to them signing him nor him playing as I would have two years ago, I guess I should say. Yeah. You and I are in the same boat. Um, we both have been, uh, on the on the far end of the of the Lance uh, the Lance train in um in Indiana, so yes, we're we're definitely the same boat there. Uh, I think my word would probably be erratic, um, just because you like I don't know. I feel like in some ways Lance is the opposite of T.J. McConnell in a lot of ways, um, or even more so like kind of like Brogdon. I th- I feel like Brogdon, you know what you're going to get every night. Like even if the shots aren't hitting, I think you know you're kind of going to get the same thing. Um, with Lance, I just am never quite sure what's going to happen in game, uh, which I mean, that that feeds right into my one play, which I cheated. It's the first quarter against Brooklyn, because what else am I going to pick for this? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, 20 points in one quarter, the first player in league history to come off the bench and score 20 points in the, in the first quarter. Um, and it, I mean, it, it was obviously the highlight of his time here. Like I. I, I don't know. As we've talked about before, I do not have a lot of good uh, memories associated with Lance, if we're being completely honest, outside of the 13-14 season. So um, when he came in, like that felt like the lowest point of the season, just about, or it could have been, I guess is the way I'll put it. And in that game against Brooklyn, like I, the tweet that I have out for it is like, because I, as I'm apt to do, I put together a compilation of everything he did in the first quarter with with music in the background. Um, and I mean, it was like the first time that it seemed like the bench had gotten excited about something in a month when he did that. And I don't know, to me, well, it's not entirely emblematic of his play. Like, I think it is in a way because it'll and it'll feed into the number a little bit. But I mean, that entire first quarter was about him getting to the rim, him hitting his pull up shots. Um, And I mean, he was really just dynamic in pick and roll in a way that the team had kind of lacked uh, from, from their guard play in a minute. So um, yeah, that is my first play in, uh, in with, with the finger quotation marks. Cause I, I very extrapolated what play means. Yeah. I mean, what else are you going to pick other than the behind the back pass sequence with Justin Anderson and O'Shea? I mean, I think that's definitely going to be the thing that, I mean, it, honestly, if you ask people what they remember most about this season as a whole, it might be that 20 point quarter from Lance. <laughs> yes. Um, just because it was, I mean, I, I think I tweeted that night, like this is wild or whatever, like to watch the fan reaction when he entered the game and you know how he played when, you know, that being the first home game back because he was somewhat underwhelming in the first couple road games yeah. and then played there. And I mean, he actually had a real impact. Like you go back and watch it. The nets were 
not caring about him shooting those shots. They were going under on the switches and letting him have them. And by the time they came out in the second half, they were sending people over. They altered their coverage to account for how hot he had been at the start of that game. And that then opened up things for Sabonis later on in the game because he is a better passer. Like, I mean, like I said, it was somewhat refreshing because we went from, you know, watching Brad Wanamaker fill that role off the bench and the playmaking just being so stagnant a lot of times with the types of possessions they would get. I mean, who can forget the, you know, play at the end of the quarter in Milwaukee when he like literally waited to get a switch against Drew Holiday and then ended up just being like two handoffs that never got any downhill momentum at all to going to Lance, who can definitely get downhill momentum going to the rim and get to the rim, especially with his right. And then also a contrast to Karras, even to a degree, because we watched for how long we're all Karras, you know, likes to reject almost every screen and go away from him, even when he isn't being weak or iced to Lance actually using them. And then, like I said, making pocket passes that we just weren't seeing other guards making. So between that game and then him having the 16 assists or whatever it was against Utah's coverage with Hassan Whiteside in a drop, like it was just nice to see and have somebody else that could reasonably run offense off the bench and get people organized. Because another play that stands out in my mind is when they won the game in Oklahoma city and um, he was playing point and was directing traffic and told Jeremy Lamb, like, come up here and set a flare based on how they're going to cover it. That's going to get Dwayne open. And it was all just him orchestrating it. It wasn't a play call. So for the sense of just seeing like an overall better product, especially when they had so many people out and based on what we had been seeing, um, it was certainly a positive. I mean, I'm with you. I mean, he is a very erratic player, but it's almost like not fair to say erratic because like that's kind of his norm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, and I don't mean that to be unfair. It's just yeah. like, it's, you just legitimately never know sometimes. Um, so for my, and number, I don't think it's, yeah. Oh, and I don't think his teammates always know what he's going to do either. Like he's uh, very yeah. unpredictable for the defense, but I think he's also very unpredictable for his teammates, but yeah. Anyways. Yes. 100%. Um, so my one number is 27.3. Do you know what that is? Is that his three point percentage on catch and shoot yeah it is wow okay you beat me to the punch yes that that is his three-point percentage on catch and shoots and that became uh i don't want to say a problem as the season went on but it just is kind of what held him back from having a bigger impact and and maybe getting more minutes uh overall um just i mean there the, the offense could really gum up if he wasn't on the ball teams didn't really respect him a ton as a shooter um and his, I mean, his pull-up per percentage really dipped after that first um, first two weeks with the team. So, um, yes, that is that is my number. Do you want to know a fun fact about his jump shooting that I, I would love to that I stumbled across on Synergy? Um, overall, on jump shots, he scored zero point eight five six points per possession on jump shots and shot thirty five point six percent. In the last four seconds of the shot clock, so, you know, not just in a quarter, like literally at the end of the shot clock, he shot 42% on jump shots. Jesus. It's like, it's like he either rises up to that moment or it helps him because he doesn't have to think. Like, I remember thinking yeah. that a few times, like before Edmund Sumner last year kind of turned the corner and was hitting the three better. The prior season, I noticed that, that like when the clock was running out and he just had to catch it and let it go he looks so much more confident as a shooter than he did when he had time to kind of hold it and 
line up the seams and other stuff, but I thought that was a fun fact and reminded me of the big shot he hit in the other game against Oklahoma City before he went like all five in the overtime on while Tyrese kept deferring to him. Before Tyrese (laughs) kept deferring to him over and over again. Um, What a time to be alive. Yeah, I mean, and that's kind of like, I don't know what your one over under is going to be, but that's kind of what has to be considered with Lance going forward. Like, I know he's a free agent. They only signed him for a rest of your contract, but if they were to retain him or consider it once they've done everything else and free agency and potentially circle back is the same opportunity that was there when they signed him where he's running a lot of offense because they flat out needed him to. And it was acceptable to be pushing Kiefer off the ball in spots because in theory, even though Kiefer could be a little bit gun shy, he was the better between the two of them off ball shooter, at least at the G league level that, like now when you look at it, depending upon who all they bring back, like obviously Tyrese is your number one primary. TJ McConnell is healthy now. However, they use Malcolm Brogdon. I mean, we saw a lot in the games with um, Tyrese and Brogdon when they were both available that Brogdon was running a lot of bench offense. And he and Lance only played, Brogdon and Lance only played 26 minutes together. Um, they did not win those few 26 minutes on the floor when they were out there at the same time, but exactly what you're saying, like, it feels to me like it's going to be, it would be a lot more of, of Lance playing off the ball. Um, if you are back, depending upon who all they retain or who else they bring in than what it was and why it fit a little bit easier with him this go around than what it would have been. Like I said, when you're in the bubble, cause I'm just having a really hard time envisioning, him and TJ McConnell out there at the same time. I mean, they played 15 minutes together when, when McConnell was healthy, which I mean, like, again, it wasn't like, I mean, McConnell hasn't played in like weeks, months, you know, whatever you want to term it as. So um, they were minus 18 in those 15 minutes. So not great, obviously playing against Philadelphia and Brooklyn though, as well. So they were just going to be outmatched, but I'm just thinking back to the last time when Lance was here and and Corey Joseph was their bench point guard in those minutes, they were the worst two man combo on the roster. And I think some of that stuff would still carry over if he's, you know, coming off the bench with TJ. And even if you're just retaining him in a third point, third string role, my question would then be like, okay, so TJ or Tyrese or somebody's hurt. I feel like if you're still retaining Brogdon, can't he go back to playing point guard like he used to in those minutes? Like, I, I don't know if if you necessarily need to commit a roster spot to that, but I don't know what your thinking is on that. Yeah, my over-under is 0.5, and that's for games played in Indy next year. And I think that's why I went with the number two, because with how the team has seemingly wanted to play and doing a lot more of um, – having the ability to to have a lot of guys who can handle and space at the same time. Um, I just wonder what his fit is like if his catch and shoot number doesn't go up. Cause if I remember correctly, that is pretty accurate with what his catch and shoot numbers have been for most of his career. I forgot to look that up, which is on me, but um, I mean, it's not a, if that's the same, if, if, if this is the same player you're getting next year, I do wonder just how much he would play is, is kind of where I'm getting. Yeah. And, and it depends on the role. Like, I mean, yeah, 
obviously the fan base wanted him back after his like session at the at the fan appreciation night giving stuff out and I will say like for people here in Indiana to have a player and there's reason why Lance would want to be in Indiana like let's face it he came back and played well he hasn't been in the NBA the Pacers gave him another chance in a place where he had already been successful and people have memories of that team going to -to back-to-back Eastern Conference finals and like you said earlier you don't have a lot of memories of him outside the 13-14 season I have memories of him in the Knicks series from the year prior where I, I think that was probably about the best he played, especially in that elimination game, that game six. And also I think fans are remembering, you know, the season somewhat similar to this one, clearly a better record, but you know, the Jeff Teague, Paul George season where that team was also kind of very lifeless and very inconsistent in terms of wins and losses and what type of opponents they beat and what type of opponents they lost to. And he comes back and there was again, kind of the similar effect there was in the first quarter of that Brooklyn game, just a rare spark that you really can't necessarily manufacture in another way. So I don't necessarily know how the front office will measure that. And it probably depends too on how competitive they think they're going to be next year. Um, If they think that, okay, well, we tried to do things in free agency or other stuff and it didn't work out. And we're looking at a longer view with young players. Maybe they're not as opposed to potentially bringing Lance back around a younger roster. I don't know. But, I mean, we'll get into Dwayne next, obviously. But, like, before I introduce some of the stuff that I have, like, let's say, and this is far-fetched, but let's say you only had one roster spot and you were picking between Lance and Dwayne. Uh, that is a good question. Um, I think I would just go with Dwayne, honestly, like, and that's not to be unfair. Um, but I think, you know, what he showed as a movement shooter down the stretch of the season. Um, and again, it was inconsistent for sure, but I do think he at least brings an element where, you know, as he factored in more as an off ball player, I think that makes a lot more sense for what the team could do. And if, if he can become a player who can come in and play, you know, 12 to 14 minutes off the bench or something like that and be a guy who takes four or five threes and makes the defense care, then I, I think that's a really important player uh, considering what their shooting was like this year. Yeah, I think I would agree there. I think that overall in the way that re- the offense is geared and how they're using people, I mean, let's face it, when TJ McConnell came back against Brooklyn, look how many threes he took in that game. Like oh. there's an expectation to be shooting off the ball and to have that type of movement and. And I just think that, you know, if you have injuries and you need to press somebody into action, it's going to be easier to slot Dwayne in there. And there might still be some upside there. Whereas, you know, Lance pretty much is what Lance is at this given point in time. Um, And again, it depends who else they have remaining, because I don't trust Dwayne as much to run offense and to be facilitating for role men and stuff as I would Lance. But um, defensively, I'm not necessarily seeing a big difference there either. If anything, like when I was going back through and watching some stuff yesterday, I was actually, you know, fairly impressed with some of what Dwayne was able to do as a help defender and switching against um, bigs that I was not remembering how scrappy he had been in some of those situations and running seams against, you know, roll men to veer back into that. So um, Lance can have some inattentive moments. I mean, I don't even know if I want to call it that. It's like when we were talking before we got on, defensively I don't know that it's even misplaced effort sometimes it's just an overall over aggressiveness like transition defense he'll gamble for a passing lane and then that's just enough moment those first three steps are just enough moment to give you know the opponent uh 
odd man advantage going the other way or um, when they're in New Orleans and they're having to front um, Jonas Valanciunas and he becomes very focused on where the ball is and doesn't realize like, oh, if I go over there and help on the backside, I also need to split my focus between my own man in the corner because now they've flashed up and got an easy high post low flash and I didn't even know that they went up there. And you could tell a very real difference between that and rookie Chris Duarte doing the same thing and, and being able to um, take away both things at once where he's sliding over and protecting against the lob and also getting back out to his guy and staying a lot more cognizant of that. And, you know, maybe that was a point of emphasis at halftime. The coaching staff might have, you know, instructed all of them like, hey, you're getting burned on this. You need to be more cognizant of it. But the reality was like there was a very clear discrepancy between the two of them and their overall um, off ball instincts, especially in that game. And I think you can see some of that show up in a lot of cases when Lance is having to defend in those situations. So it's not like you're necessarily gaining a major edge there, I guess is my point between he and Dwayne. But if you want to, we can hop on to what I picked as my one play for Dwayne Washington Jr. Are you ready? Yes. Okay. So some of what you said actually applies here. And I had, again, I've had difficulty Um, drilling down on one play for all of these. So it is one play type, but when people click this, and again, I want to emphasize anybody that's listening and wants to follow along, we'll have the videos embedded in the post at Indie Corners if you want to watch. It's the same play type, but there's multiple examples of it because anytime this happened, I was pretty certain that something good was not going to come of it. So They're running a touch screen in the first example against the Kings, which is basically just Dwayne Washington coming up from the corner when a guard has the ball and screening for it and popping out to the top of the key. So Buddy has the ball. Dwayne does that, gets at the top of the key, catches the pass. If there isn't airspace for him to shoot there, which there isn't because of what you said earlier, the two off-ball weak side players dotting are Lance and Terry Taylor in the corner and the Kings do not care. They're both in the paint and Jeremy Lamb comes all the way off of Lance, which of course, Jeremy Lamb being his teammate would know, like I can come all the way off of Lance and goes and effectively double teams Dwayne Washington Jr. with Alex Lynn. And now here comes the compound problem that I think shows up with Dwayne at times. He has two defenders. The other two defenders are both just waiting for him in the lane, pulled all the way over off the weak side. And Lance and and Terry are both wide open where you could at least kick the ball there. And even if they don't make the shot, you know, they could then drive and kick and at least put the Kings into rotation. But he ends up forcing a wide angle layup and misses it pretty badly. So this play happens again and again, where if you go through games, you're going to find it. So now they're in Atlanta. He does the same thing for Kiefer, sets the touch screen, pops to the top of the key, uses a shoulder semi to get past Kevin Herter. And I don't know why he drives to his right instead of his left, because if he goes left, he's going to pull the one defender off of Buddy. But instead, he drives into the help side instead. And then there's like no weak side going on to distract. Nobody cares about Terry running through the lane. Trey Young's just waiting there. And again, it's another poor wide angle layup. Same thing against Boston, same exact play. Screens for Lance, pops to the top of the key, gets it in space against Peyton Pritchard and Tice is waiting for him at the rim because they're not doing anything weak side. And now he gets his shot blocked. Um, Running it against the Sixers in the second to the last game of the year. Screens for Tyrese, pops. Gets James Harden in space, attacks, and Joel Embiid's just waiting for him at the rim because they're not doing anything weak side. So the theme here is threefold, that 
in all cases, Dwayne beat his man off the dribble, which I think counts for something. Like he had the initial advantage, but then when he gets into the paint, there's usually one or more defenders there and they're not doing anything to clear it out. And also it's all poor finishes with wide angle drives or very secure circuitous paths to the basket where he's, he's not able to finish. So I know that you had brought this up in the past. Do you remember the play in San Antonio when Dwayne had the dunk? Yes, of course. So for the benefit of people, I have also linked that up above this video. And the difference being is Dwayne again, catches it at the top of the key, but instead of just having him attack in space against his defender, buddy, then as he often does, cut slot to slot, effectively like a reignition screen. And that creates enough hesitation where Dwayne can get in the paint. And at the same time on the weak side, Goga is setting an exit screen for Jalen. So Jock Lawndale and the other Spurs defender, I can't tell because my video is somewhat blurry, are occupied. And that's why Dwayne's able to get the dunk. So I guess my main point with this is, is I want to give Dwayne credit because I think he can do more than shoot. I think he can get into the paint. I think he has some very subtle shoulder shakes and he has, you know, the little half turn over his shoulder, um, the Smitty where he can get to the rim off of that, but he doesn't finish all that well. Once he gets there, I think synergy has him as 45% around the basket. So he can do more, but I think that the Pacers need to do more to help him do more. If that makes sense. No, that totally makes sense. Um, and I think uh, it definitely has an interesting, interesting element too to see, you know, how can he improve some of his craft finishing around the rim because it felt like he was able to get guys at first. Um, but it, it the second that defenders were like, oh, he's going with the offhand every time on the on, on an inside layup, like he just got smoked at the rim. It felt like after that, um, which obviously it wasn't every time, but like it, it, it became very apparent as as the season went on, like, oh yeah, teams know that he does this. Um, so I agree. It'll be interesting to see what he can do because he is not a vertical guy. Um, so finding more pacing, like you mentioned, the Smitty, um, adding more moves into his his bag from there too will be really interesting to see as well. And developing as a passer off drives too, because I, how do you feel about him as a passer off drives? Yeah, I mean, it's like what I said in that Sacramento clip. I mean, as soon as Jeremy comes over to double, Lance is right there wide open. And if you don't necessarily want Lance as a catch-and-shoot guy, Lance could have attacked into that space yeah. if you immediately throw it back to him, and he didn't even – he doesn't even see it. Like, I don't think it's like – I want to term it as selfishness. Like, mm -hmm. he legitimately just doesn't see some of that some sometimes. He has some real tunnel vision as a driver. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and exactly yeah. what you're saying too, with the finishing, because he loves on the left side of the basket to, to go off the wrong foot and finish with his right. And there are times where teams catch that. I feel like a lot of times it's, it's somewhat of a strength issue where he needs to get and veer back in front of his defender and get his shoulder into their chest as he goes to the basket, because it's leading to like practically, like I wouldn't necessarily call it a hook shot, but it's a real wide angle when he gets to yeah. the basket. And that's just leading to some like all glass attempts. Yeah, no, it's very weird. Um, and I think that's a good point too. Cause he, like you mentioned, he does have like the really big shoulders and he is pretty strong for somebody his size. So I would like to see him lean into drawing contact more instead of shying away from it at times. Um, it's just gonna, yeah, it'll be an interesting development to track for sure. Um, what is your one number? My one number goes right along with this because it's actually 38%, and that's what he converted on runners, um, according to Synergy. And I think that that would help this as well. 
because mm-hmm. if he's not going to be able to get around the second line of defense, which in most cases, that's what these clips are showing. He can beat his initial man and get there, but unless the Pacers are either distracting the big with some type of screening action, he's having trouble when he's finishing right there. I feel like if you could stop in front of that and just go right into the runner from mid range or, you know, whatever that, that, that would also help him as well. He has the teardrop. He's just not super accurate with it yet. So that's what I picked. Okay. Yeah, no, that would be interesting because you're, you're totally right. Like him uh, adding that. And I mean, like he's comfortable taking the pull up too as well, but getting into more of the intermediate instead of just coming, you know, one, two pull up, uh, on the interior off of a screen, like being able to do more when he does get downhill. And if he is uh, like just being able to add some of the pacing and craft uh, on the way to the rim, not just at the rim would open up more for him too. So I'm, I'm interested to see how that develops as well. Yeah. Cause the clip I almost picked that I do kind of want to bring up is when they're in Atlanta, Atlanta tends to go to zone when a Kongu is playing at center behind Capella, they'll mix some of that in. And there's times where he can be like, I don't know if it was a zone buster deliberately called by Rick Carlisle. Cause it was out of a timeout. I don't know if he anticipated that Atlanta might go zone and called it, or if it was just a read by Dwayne, but they ran Kiefer off of Iverson and Dwayne was in the left corner and with Kiefer headed in that direction. And then because it was zone Dwayne cut from the corner up to the top of the key and that sucked in the defense so that Kiefer got a wide open three. And I feel like that's even a cut you could use, like effectively a shallow cut behind the pick and roll, especially on the side pick and rolls, that if they filtered that in more, that that's another way you could use them, especially like if you think about it next year, I mean, he's not going to have as many opportunities if he is still on the roster, be doing as many things on ball, I wouldn't think, is like, you know, there was a long stretch where like he and Kiefer were starting during the COVID, you know, depleted period. There was even moments where they flat out needed Dwayne to do some point guard things, like when they were in Cleveland and he was trying to attack Jared Allen. They're like, I, I would hope that unless they have like another bad rash of injuries, that he wouldn't have to be getting pressed into doing quite that much, where... I feel like there's even areas that they could extend him to doing that don't even have to do with his shooting, like making that type of a cut or when they are doing some of the guard to guard screening, something that I'm seeing in the playoffs is that guards are turning those screens to regain advantages against switches that I think that um, they could do more often, like, especially if he's screening for buddy um, or somebody who might need a little bit more of an advantage against the switch in that type of situation. So I did want to bring that up because I do agree with you. I think that some of his off ball movement got better. And in that type of a situation, like making that cut against the Hawks, I don't know if it was choreographed or not, but very intuitive. But then there would be other cases like when I wrote the, you know, one thing that each player can work on where they're playing Cleveland's three, two zone and Brogdon drives baseline and he lifted up to the wing instead of drifting to the corner. And then Brogdon got fairly annoyed. It was like, you provided me with no outlet. So like, it's not just about being a floor spacer. He also needs to be a floor drifter. Like when you're watching this Hawks heat series and you see exactly how good Tyler hero and Duncan Robinson are at always making themselves visible to the ball. And that's how Miami is able to generate some of the shots that they get. Like, I think that um, putting him in the line of sight of pick and roll ball handlers like Tyrese, he could also get a little bit better at. Yeah, no, that's a really great point. So my one over under is five and a half. 
And this kind of plays into what we already talked about with Lance, and that's guards in front of him in the rotation next year. Okay. Uh, so do you need help counting them out? I'm thinking right now. So, yeah, TJ, Chris Duarte, um, Malcolm, Tyrese. So that's four already. Buddy Heald, five. Am I, am I forgetting anybody? I don't think I'm forgetting anybody. Lance, potentially. Oh, yeah, potentially Lance. Or if they, you know, draft or sign a different guard. Or, you know, Edmund Sumner's back to dunking now. I don't know if you've been watching any of his videos. I have seen. It has been kind of really nice to see. Because um, he's not typically very active on social media, but the last month or so he's been very active uh, compared to what he usually is. But um, I think... This is such a tough one. I kind of want to say over. I just get the feeling that they're going to sign another guard. So essentially, especially you're with all the Jalen Brunson. Jalen Brunson. Seems, yeah. Yep. Um, it's, it's. I mean, it just seems like they are not super set with what the guard rotation is right now, uh, based on on reporting and just stuff coming out. But uh, where would you go on this one? I'm kind of leaning the over. Yeah. Um. I mean, I guess it depends because, like, depending upon what they do with Brogdon and Buddy, like, and we've already talked about the Russell Westbrook thing. We don't need to get into that again. But, like, if they did decide, you know, we're going to go with a longer view, we want to move those contracts and maximize cap space and potentially get assets in return, and you fill out the roster, like, that's two guards, and you might actually be looking for wings to fill some of those spots or at least one of them. Like, if, if you moved both of them, like, let's face it, through the back half of this season, they're having to fill the rotation with, like, O'Shea playing up a position or Lance playing down a position or Buddy at times and three-guard lineups having to play the three. Like, if you did move Brogdon and Buddy, they might, you know, look for areas where they could find a three to fit one of those spots. So then that might make it more plausible that Dwayne might be, like, the fifth guard in the rotation. Um but yeah, I agree with you. The fact that the Jalen Brunson things being floated out there um, leads me to think that if they did move Brogdon, that they would be doing it with the idea of still wanting to potentially spruce up the backcourt rotation just in a younger mold. Yeah, no, exactly. And hey, I mean, Jalen Brunson had 41, so <laughs> props to him. Did you watch that, that had, game? That had nothing to do with the Utah Jazz defense. <laughs> Absolutely nothing to do with it. Uh, yeah, that defense is so atrocious right now uh wow gosh that okay I'll, I'll ask you this what's worse their defense or denver's well i have to admit that during the denver game i was falling asleep at times so oh, i don't have as much us. frame of yeah. reference on exactly what i denver's wonder why you were falling asleep. like <laughs> i just had no confidence going into that game that the yeah. nuggets were going to win so like as much fun of a show as the golden state warriors are i, I wasn't very attentive during that game but i think with with utah like my bigger area of surprises i agree with the internet's overall opinion that like the constant talking point about rudy getting played off the floor isn't true and that you can't expect him to be teleporting in front of the rim and also running out to the corner and the funny thing is is in game one like i clipped it and was like look you know rudy x'd out with donovan mitchell and he raced up to Maxi Kleber and, and Donovan went down to the corner shooter and they covered it and they did both things. And then the second game comes and it's like all of their they rotations are so anything. out of whack. 
And then like, I agree, like their perimeter defenders are getting beat, but like the idea that Rudy didn't have any mistakes defensively in that game, like go back and watch it. There was times where he needed to be at the level. There was times where he got pulled up into space against Jordan Clarkson and, and, you know, got beat. There was times where they got beat on dribble handoffs and they didn't veer back switch out of it. There was a really bad miscommunication on a switch between he and Boyan Bogdanovich, where he just got absolutely crushed on a screen that led to another three. Like I understand defending the idea that that roster in terms of supporting him with good defenders, which is, you know, kind of applies to the Pacers to a degree. And what we've talked about in the past, like, yes, Miles Turner is definitely an upgrade over the other bigs on this roster. But if you don't put any other players who can actually guard on the perimeter around him, then that's what type of position he has the potential to be in where he's having to teleport over to make sure that they're not scoring at the rim and still try to get out if they play against a smaller spread team in a situation like that. But um, I am of the rare opinion, I guess, based on what I've seen online that Rudy was also making mistakes defensively in that game. Yeah, no, it's a, uh, I'm gonna go on a rant too. Um, I, I feel the exact same way. Like it's, it's so annoying. I'm so tired of it. I, I, I have contemplated just turning off Twitter for the playoffs because same thing, like, it's happening in Denver too. Um, like I'm writing something about this right now. It's been frustrating, but like everybody's like, Oh, well this, this just shows you can't play two to the ball and be a championship level team. I'm like, no, I think this is more like you can't play two to the ball and then have no backline rotations whatsoever and have absolutely terrible communication. And it also really hurts when you're playing against a team like golden state. That's so good at pushing in transition and forcing cross matches and, and making you just look absolutely silly for not getting back in time. Like it's just, we don't need to have resolute takes on everything is my thing. It's, it's just, ah, yeah, we're in the same boat here. I, let's get, I'll, I'll, I'll get us back to the pod. Um, are, are you ready to talk about TJ McConnell? Yes, I am. Um, so I also cheated. I think you and I fudged the plays for all three of these guys um, and made it not just one play. Uh, so for TJ, mine is just any time that he was spaced in the corner this year. Um, I like that pick. Yeah, I think it was extremely necessary. Uh, hitting back to our very first podcast on this season from talking about the preseason. Um, like, my question is just like, I, I mean, we know the utility of TJ McConnell. We know how impactful he can be. But the problem is just we saw time and time again this year when he is not running the offense for the second unit, it can just look really gummy. And like, yes, in that game against Brooklyn, he went three of seven from three. It was glorious for him. Props. Did the defense give a shit? Was it glorious for him? Well, it was it was it was not really like awesome that he hit three threes and was willing to take that many in a game. But I think we also just saw like the defense doesn't care. Like and, and I I don't have confidence in TJ McConnell to I mean it's not to not to be unfair, but it just feels so similar to Thad. Like Okay, awesome. If you go three of seven for three in a game, that's sick. But we know what's going to happen in the playoffs. And not that I think this is a playoff team next year. They might think otherwise. I don't know what they think right now, to be completely honest. But, like, if you're expecting T.J. McConnell to come in next year and be somebody who is going to take every open three, I just don't think that that is serviceable, to be completely honest. It just doesn't get off quick enough. It doesn't impact the defense. 
I think it would, it would, like we've talked about this before, it would require like an entire season of him doing this for the, or at least half a season of him doing this for the defense to really care. And I just don't know that I, I trust it getting to that level. And if it, it just brings a lot of questions up for me about what TJ's actual fit is with the team moving forward, if they're not going to empower him to have the ball in his hands consistently. Yeah, I think that this is I, I'm very pleased that this is what you brought up, because if you didn't bring it up, I was going to take the conversation there anyways, <laughs> because I mean, they talked about it and props to him because they said that while he was, you know, rehabbing and coming back from the wrist injury that Jenny Busick and other members of the coaching staff really worked with him on his shot and trying to remake it from the ground up because they had that opportunity to do so. So credit to him. And like you said, I I do credit him that he made three of those shots, but what you're saying is still accurate. Like I'm not seeing that his release is a lot quicker. So even if he's making some of them, you're still going to be able to cheat off of him because you're going to be able to get back out there and contest if they contest, which in a lot of these two games, like they're not like they're noticing, Oh, he's who has the ball. And then it's a soft contest. So they're just watching him shoot it. Um, So you know, it's only been two games, so there's not much of an adjustment there. But if we go back to the beginning of the season, yeah, I mean, it was frustrating. There was games against the Wizards. Like, I know you and I, I think we had a podcast after that game, the one where Miles scored 40, and they're in crunch time in the overtime, and he's in the closing lineup with Malcolm Brogdon, and he's playing in the corner. So now you're running a double drag with Miles and Sabonis, and there's already not going to be great tension there. I mean, Miles had scored 40 in that game and his guy still had one foot in the paint defending the double drag against Sabonis, even though he had hit however many threes in that game. And then you have TJ in the weak side corner, just completely pulling over. So in Brogdon's defense, I think sometimes why his playmaking, like he's not, he doesn't have the same eye manipulation and pass fakes and overall feel as Tyrese does. But if you look at it by comparison, he also didn't have the spacing to be making reads and the double drags to the degree that Tyrese does like that's a way more congested pass. So the ball ends up going to the most open player on the floor, which was TJ. And it just didn't always make a lot of sense in those situations. Like why does this have to happen? And I kind of understood at the time why TJ was in the closing lineup because, you know, Karis wasn't available. TJ Warren wasn't available. Jeremy Lamb gives people an opportunity to hunt him defensively and they were in zone and TJ, you know, by my standard, is probably their best defender at the top of his own on the current roster. So like I get it, but why exactly he had to be used in that way? Cause then I remember when they went to Brooklyn um, early on the road and remember when he took like the two pull-ups, like within the first 14 seconds of the shot clock, like he squared up and it took a very long time for him to set his feet and to get the ball up. And it just felt like it took too long to finally kind of like unleash and let him do what he does. And I remember they even added like, which a lot of NBA teams run it, but it's basically like a down screen and then a pass back for him to go off a ball screen and attack the side and go baseline that Nate Bjorken ran for him all the time. And they finally started like adding in more of those sideline baseline attacks for him and letting him probe more. And then he had that really good stretch on the road trip against the Kings and the jazz and the trailblazers. We had several games in a row and double figures had a strong November and he was touching the ball more. I think he was averaging like over 70 touches during that stretch compared to 59 in October. I'm not saying like he needs to be leading the team. Like that's probably a bit much. And it was tilted that way because again, Brogdon had strep throat for part of that. And he was actually starting, but um, it goes back to kind of what the theme had been is that, you know, coming out of Dallas, you know, the idea, at least from Carlisle's sake, is he didn't, you know, wanted to coach the roster to the roster and not be a system coach. And very early on in the season, 
it felt more so that he was trying to mold players to the system. Um, some of that might've just been trying to feel out what everybody can do and trying to optimize where he was going to put everybody. And also like guys being out and being pressed into different stuff. But there was just a lot of cases where it's like, why does this have to happen? Because that's, that's even what I felt in that Brooklyn game, which is why I kind of made my remark because they're in transition and TJ's guy, like Kyrie's already guarding Tyrese. And I don't even remember who was guarding TJ, but TJ's guy comes all the way off to double Tyrese And then in the past, what we would have seen is like TJ doing the go and catch and attacking into that space. And then Tyrese could have hit him as a cutter for him to then either drive or kick or finish in the paint. And he's just glued to the wing of the three point line and then takes a three. And I don't remember if he made that one or not, but I just remember thinking in my head, like, why does he have to be glued to the three point line? And then there's one that he took against the Sixers where he was wide open. And you can tell that he's still hesitant about it because he took a rhythm dribble. There was nobody within like five feet of him. And he held it like trying to decide, well, should I shoot? Should I not shoot? And then he bounced it once before he ever even let it go. And it just got front rim. So like some of the corner ones in certain circumstances, like even if he starts with the ball in his hands, he's going to move off the ball eventually. And if it's late clock, you accept, you accept that and you want him to take it and hopefully take it with confidence. But like seeing him pull up and transition at the beginning of a clock or watching him where he used to be able to do, like I'm saying, like the go and catches or seeing him. Um, there was a stretch in the middle of the season too, where against switches, they were using him as a screener and then he would slip out of that. And I, I liked that a lot better. I guess I don't really know why he has to be like, why does everybody have to be a shooter? And if you want everybody to be a shooter, I kind of think to myself, like, why did you shape the roster in this way? I guess is my opinion. Where's Doug? Yeah, no, uh, sorry. No, I mean, that's a fair question. Honestly, (laughs) I mean, Doug McDermott killed it in his like 20 game stretch under Rick Carlisle. Like when I wrote the little thing about like, here's how Rick Carlisle's playbook would fit. I wrote him like, Oh, look, they're still running some of these plays that Doug used to run. And like, You know, I understand what he got paid from San Antonio, but I mean, genuinely in that mold, like if you weren't really going to morph the system that much and be accommodating a little bit more about what types of players you have, I don't fully understand it if I'm being honest. Yeah, it's uh, it's confusing. Um, I'm really not sure. I'm not really sure what to think of 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 this with him. Um, I did, I have a different over under than, you know, uh, than I did with Lance, but. Oh, what was your number? Did you have a number? Oh, I do have a number. Uh, This actually factors in too. Um, My number is 10. Do you know what that is? 10. No, I don't. That is the difference in his mid range shooting between this year and last year. Um, yeah, because so he, he shot, shot out of his mind on this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 56% from mid-range per cleaning glass in 1920 or 2021. Jeez. Um, you know, 57% from short mid-range, 47% from, from uh, I mean, 54% from long mid-range. And then that went down to 47% short mid, 47%, I mean, 43% long. Uh, this year, there's a huge drop-off. Like, it's still solid, but he went from – you know, I mean, he went from being almost arguably the best closer in the 2021 season, like so much of their late offense could flow through him. And he he was a big part of the closing lineups, too. Um, and I'm not saying that that totally changes his value now, but with that drop off, like it does make it a little bit less palatable um, with his offense in a way like not that it's completely groundbreaking. But I also think part of that is 
Um, well, I can't say that it's without having Sabonis because he played with Sabonis for the majority of his time before injury. But um, it, I don't know. It definitely changes the calculus a little bit. Yeah, I mean, if we're being honest, though, like that number last year was practically like it was God-like. unsustainable. Yeah. Like his number in the non-restricted area. Like I don't remember. I'm thinking that the only people that shot a higher percentage on I don't remember, like probably his volume of shots in the non-restricted area when we did these pods last year was like Jokic and Trey Young. And I forget who the other person was like, it was, it was basically a godlike number. And I will say that overall, I do feel like a lot of the stuff that Nate Bjork and ran suited TJ better. Um, And with the exception that in November, I did feel like he started to find a little bit more of a groove. And I still find it hilarious that like, um, he made big shots late against the Sixers and the Kings. Like that one play where they just kept running the double drag snake screen with Sabonis three times in a row and the Sixers made zero adjustment against it. And then when he made some big um, shots around the rim against the Kings, when De'Aaron Fox was chasing him over for inexplicable reasons, like Tyrese Maxey chased him over on all three of those, I think too, which didn't make sense. But um, yeah, I mean, I remember last year when he made the big shots in that mid range area, like he's going to get to that spot to the world melt. It's just a matter of whether he's going to hit it. So I'm not entirely surprised that he had some drop off there because it didn't seem super sustainable, but it does change a little bit. Some of those plays can be boom or bust because sometimes it's him racing the ball up the floor and transition and taking a quick pull up to which you live with when he's hitting it like what you're saying, like a 55, 50 above 50% clip, not near as palatable if that's 10 percentage points lower than that. Um, So it is something to consider. I, I, I kind of want to reserve judgment completely on the three point shooting and some of the other stuff until I've seen him do it over a larger sample size um, and see how defenses completely respond to him. But um, I just, I'm with you. I struggle to see that it's going to be a massive adjustment um, to warrant, like I said, stripping some of what he does do just to glue him to the three point line. But, you know, yeah. no, exactly. I'm right there with you. Um, well, my over under is one and a half. What do you think that is? One and a half years that he plays on the extension. Uh, no, that's a good guess, but, uh, it's, uh, guards off the bench in front of him. Guards off the bench in front of him. I'm probably going to take the under on that. Oh, okay. Who do you think's in front of him? Um, no, I mean, that's a good question. I think. Are you talking like six man? Like who's going to go in first? Are you talking about like somebody's going to play in front of him as reserve point guard? No, yeah. Who will play in front of him? Uh, not just reserve point guard, but just guards off the bench in general. So like if, um, that's a good question. Wow. I may have fudged this one second. I'm looking at the roster now. Did I fudge this? Like, do you like? I mean, I guess it's a fair question if you think that Brogdon's going to run bench offense. Well, I guess the question is, okay, yeah, like, so I maybe I did mess this up. See, because, like, I don't know, this, like, yeah, because you got Buddy, you got Tyrese, you got Malcolm, you got Duarte. I guess. Damn it. I, I did mess this one up. I guess I would probably go on the over on this, um, but I guess it would just depend too. But yeah, it's yeah. We'll I mean, if, if they don't use him as the the main reserve point guard, um, I would have a lot of questions about why he was paid the non-taxpayer mid-level. If, if, yeah. if he returns and they don't move him this summer, which it seems like 
I think that he'll be back. I mean, of the other people that they might move, I, I don't think it's very likely that they're probably going to move him after the season he just had with the wrist injury. Plus, like, I think that he does seem like somebody, at least from afar, that does have a leadership impact, somewhat yeah. of a locker room presence that they value and, and see as him being a fit for this market. So, um, unless he comes back next year and it just doesn't look like it's working with him in the offense, which I did feel like they figured some of that out, like I referenced before. Um, I think he's still going to be the main reserve backup because even if they do play, I mean, it, it goes back to what Brogdon wants, I guess. I mean, and not even completely, like obviously he's the player and the coach is going to decide what they do. But um, if they do want to keep Tyrese and Brogdon, it seems like, you know, they might want to give Brogdon some breathing room to still be able to run offense. And then you're re-entering the problem that we talked about before where TJ would then be playing off ball. But um, I guess it remains to be seen whether Brogdon's still going to be on the roster. So I just have so many questions about this team, I think is what we end up coming back to pretty much. But yeah. Um, do you have anything else you want to hit on with TJ? No, I think that covers TJ pretty well. I mean, I wish we could have seen him play a little bit more with some of the new players and a little bit more in minutes with Tyrese. But unfortunately, that wasn't the case against a wider array of competition other than just two of the better teams in the Eastern Conference. But I mean, I guess I never did fully get your input because we did hear from the front office after the trade was made, but we didn't hear from the front office, at least not yet. And like in a season presser, if they are even going to do that. And I noticed that like, this has been a pretty big talking point with Nick's Twitter because Leon Rose didn't hold a postseason presser. And some people have very strong opinions about that. And other people are like, it's just going to be a bunch of platitudes. So like we can still have opinions about the team without hearing from him. Like, where do you stand on that? Would you feel like you had a little bit better idea if they had done an indices impressor or if they still do one? Or do you just think that like, well, it's probably just like what I said, like it, you're probably not going to be able to tell much from that. Yeah. I mean, it's just going to be a bunch of executive speak anyways, you know? So it's just kind of like, eh. I'm not sure that we'll get much from it, but I would love to. I mean, the biggest thing for me is I just want to hear, is this a rebuild or is this not? Not that they're necessarily going to be open about it, but um, I mean, I just am so frustrated with not knowing what the direction is. Not that, I mean, maybe it's wrong for me to expect that they're going to be super open about it. Cause yeah, maybe I guess that can factor into what leeway you get, but it's just, I don't know. Like, especially after that comment from Rick, like I, I want to know for sure, because then it's, it's, it just makes it so much harder to understand where they're going. If you don't know where, like if, if they don't put out at least some kind of direction as to what they're doing, then I'm just like, okay, I'm waiting to see, we'll see what happens. Um, you know, yeah, I thought least... it was interesting. Cause they, they put an ad in the Indy star. I don't know if you saw it. Did you see it? I don't think I did. Um, give me a second to look it up. Oh man. <laughs> This is, I mean, no, it's not bad. It's just that, like, aha, here it is. Okay. It's April 17th. I wasn't back enough days. Okay. Uh, so now we can, I'll, I'll try to introduce it again. I'll say, like, um, I don't remember where I linked off before I started just randomly scrolling the internet. But anyways, here's what the ad says. 
The 2021-22 season may be over, but we already feel energized for what's to come. The future is bright, and we're looking to get back to the top of the NBA and bring basketball's best fans a season you'll never forget. After all, we know it just means more in Indiana. So let's enjoy the next part of this journey together. Next season will mark the official completion of GameBridge Fieldhouse and the tip-off of many new traditions. We cannot create we cannot wait to create these lifelong memories together. And then they just thank the fans for watching the team. I did think it was curious that they said that they're looking to get back to the top of the NBA, but then they also did qualify later on. Let's enjoy the next part of this journey together. So, yeah, I mean, I think in part, like I'm somewhat on the fence with it. I think that I like to have as much information as possible. I don't think that there would have been no value in it. They might be considering that Kevin, like I said, Kevin Pritchard already talked after they traded for Tyrese Halliburton and he kind of laid it out in the sense of saying, you know, this isn't a rebuild. We have too many good players, but then also put forth at the end, like there's a lot of directions we could go in and we're excited about those types of possibilities, which I felt was kind of the smartest way to frame it because you're not necessarily boxing yourselves into something. But then you, like you said, like, Rick did have that comment whenever he was addressing some of the rumors where he had said, like, I'm not afraid of a rebuild, which maybe that was just him looking back retroactively over where the season had been. But it kind of sounded somewhat future tense. Like if we are in a rebuild, I'm not scared of that. And I came here to coach. So like, I don't want to necessarily just relitigate what that word means, but in terms of like us having done these player review pods and trying to project who might be still on the roster and, and how competitive they're hoping to be, It's kind of hard to say. I mean, he had another quote from the end of season um, exit interviews where, I mean, I don't think that Kevin Pritchard talked, but Rick Carlisle did where Rick said at the, at the exit interviews, and this is via the Indy stars transcription from the article that they put out about um, the rationale behind to trade or not to trade for Russell Westbrook. He said, quote, this was a difficult year. It was a trying year. It was certainly an unsuccessful year in terms of the record and what we had hoped for coming back into it. We obviously have an important summer of continued player development with our young guys and also with the draft and free agency. The franchise is in an exciting position in a lot of ways, but what happened this year is something that is not going to be acceptable going forward. It's just not what this franchise has been about. So if you take that in conjunction with, you know, Kevin Pritchard saying we have too many good players and also some of the stuff that Tyrese has kind of alluded to, and like the GQ interview he did. And then I think that he was on ESPN and kind of had referenced the words like soft rebuild and that like, yeah, we're going to have a down year this year, but we hope to be, you know, competitive again. It seems like that's what their overall track is. Now, maybe that changes depending upon where their lottery pick comes in at and um, what types of players they can potentially sign with cap space or not sign. And also like what, how Miles Turner feels about potentially um, signing an extension or renegotiating his contract. Like there's clearly a lot of moving parts, but I don't know. It seems like it's tough to completely decipher um, how they felt a lot about a lot of things this season. And in part, I also waver back and forth because, you know, how the messaging was presented early in the year, there was so many little sound bites that kind of dominated the conversation and that's not completely on them. Cause I don't feel that in all cases that the entire context of what was said was really being um, presented in that way, but I don't necessarily miss having to just combat that when we're talking about the team, but it also makes it harder to talk about the team because we don't know exactly who's staying and who's going, but I just wondered how you felt about not having um, an end of season presser yet, or if you were bothered by it. I mean, I don't think it bothered me. But yeah, um, I mean, I'm in the same mode as you. I just kind of 
a little bit indifferent, but more just like I would just rather that they they show us because it it's felt in some ways that they're much more willing to to say stuff than do things in in a way the last year or two. Um, so uh, not not that they're not I don't know saying that they're not willing to do things would be the wrong way to put it, but like it has been like a lot of uh, they have been very active in in saying things uh, to a degree uh, both on social media and in general over the last year or two, and I'm just. I just want to see them actually commit to doing something. So. Yeah, watching the various fan bases discuss things, because I guess the other reason this came up in my head was because of Sam Presti answering questions for, I guess, like, did you see that on Twitter that he took like two hours worth of questions at his end of season presser down in Oklahoma City about the direction of the team? Uh, I did not see that. Yeah, like, I guess he came out there. I guess it's not completely uncommon for him that he feels like, you know, when he talks at the beginning of the season and the end, he said that he wasn't going to put a time limit on it. And reporters just kept asking him more and more questions about, you know, whether they would be willing to cash in stuff or, you know, uh, you know, I don't want to put words into his mouth, but it sounded like that they were essentially asking, like, would you be willing to cash in picks for a player? Or are you still prepared to be patient next year? And, you know, all types of questions like that by comparison, and, you know, Thunder fans seem to really have appreciated that he was willing to sit there and answer all those questions versus, like I said, Leon Rose just kind of, I think, put out a letter on on what the Knicks season was. And it seemed like some fans were frustrated by that. I think I'm somewhere in the middle. I think that the way that they handled it at the trade deadline ultimately worked out well that, you know, I think with how the fan base has been somewhat disengaged and apathetic and how they got, you know, riled up about love this little team and other stuff, it might work somewhat better in their favor to just, you know, let it play out and then explain why they went in whatever direction they went in after it happens. But um, it does make it a little bit harder to evaluate. Yeah, no, exactly. I think we're in the same boat there. Um, do you want to hit on anything else before we got here? Cause I think that just about captures all of it. I think this might be our shortest player review yet, but <laughs> yeah, and it's still in an hour. So we, we crushed it. Um, um, well, if we wouldn't have had the, the rants about uh, various playoff things that didn't have a lot to do with the pot, but um, yeah, felt so necessary given the, there's a, there's a lot of agenda pushing going on um, a lot, a lot of agenda pushing. And it's very frustrating. I, I think my only agenda is basketball. So <laughs> I, I, I think we feel similarly on that. So my, um, just to let the listeners know, we only have one more of these left. We're going to cover Tyrese and Isaiah Jackson and Chris Duarte and the last one. We do have plans for draft content. It's just been slightly delayed. So be on the lookout for that as well, where we're going to start doing some of these on various draft prospects and, and hopefully be incorporating some writing with it as well. So, um, there is fun topics on the horizon. There are very fun topics on the horizon. Well, Caitlin, This has been a blast to everyone listening. Thank you for listening. If you haven't already, please be sure to rate and review us over on Apple Podcasts. We want to hear from you and get your feedback. And most importantly, have a good rest of your day. And thank you for listening.